We've all wondered what the future's going to be like, and tales of climate meltdown, bioterrorism and feral children dominate our newspapers. The future seems like a fearful place, but I went to meet a man who's remarkably optimistic about the future of humanity and our planet. I'm Dr Kat Arney, and this is a Naked Scientist special about Mark Stevenson's new book, An Optimist's Tour of the Future. Rather than all the doomsayers predicting war, famine, death, drought, pestilence, climate catastrophe and Katie Price's next book, Mark asks what would happen if all the amazing technology that scientists are working on actually comes off. What if we can make robots that can think and feel? What about cheating death and engineering humans that can live for thousands of years? Solving the energy crisis using only some humble algae or a giant microwave? And how about restoring the drought-stricken Australian outback with nothing more than a few fence panels and a motorbike? An Optimist Tour of the Future is a rollercoaster ride of a book that leaves you shaking your head and muttering, wow, as Mark speeds around the world asking the question, what next? I met up with him behind the scenes at an event celebrating the book's launch, so apologies for some of the background noise. And I asked him what first got him started on his amazing journey. My original inspiration was that, um, I don't know about you, but I just find the level of science communication in the general uh, press and its reflection on our politics is a bit ropey. And uh, a lot of popular science books are written for people who read New Scientist and, uh, and Scientific American. And I, I was, just wasn't getting a clear enough picture, so I decided I wanted to go and find out for myself because I couldn't find anything that gave me a sort of a scientifically accurate yet um, easy-to-grasp piece of, uh, you know, what's going on? What is biotech? I mean, you know, we hear about it, don't we know? What is nanotech? I don't know, except it's very small. What is really happening with the climate? So I just sort of followed my nose, really, and just thought, right, I'm going to go and find out. So that was the idea, really. And were we particularly optimistic, as opposed to just a general investigation of what's happening in the future? Ah, well, that's a very good question, because it didn't start off with the word optimist in the title. So it was actually a general investigation into the future. When I pitched the book originally, it was called A World Tour of the Future. But by the time I'd come back, I was so excited about all the things I'd heard about that nobody was telling me about, I'd not heard about in the press, that, um, that the word optimist somehow got itself into the title. So that was actually really sort of just the result of seeing what I'd seen. And do you think that's a counter to the sort of doom and gloom, oh, God, we're all going to hell, that seems to be common in the, in the press at the moment? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, it has to be a counter, because I don't know about you, but the narrative of our future, as far as I can tell, is it's a bit rubbish, uh, we're all going to hell in the handcart, you can't trust the generation below you because they're all feral and uh, untrustworthy and they can't think. Um, you can't trust left-wingers or right-wingers or uh, atheists or religious people or what you eat or uh, your neighbour. Uh, vote for me, buy my paper, I understand. I mean, that's about it. And the thing is, I can't remember a time when I haven't heard that. So it's very interesting to meet a bunch of people who have just kind of rejected that whole narrative and just getting on with making things better. I mean, if they had a mantra, it would be, cheer up, it might happen. And so what was your tour? How did you try and find out about things that are exciting and are positive? Well, as I said, I didn't, I didn't necessarily set out to find things that are exciting and positive. I just couldn't help bumping into them. But I decided to throw myself in at the deep end, really, um, sort of being an amateur. I, I went off to see the transhumanists at the Oxford University's Future of Humanity Institute. And uh, I'm sure many of your listeners know that transhumanists are the people who believe we can transcend our biology and live forever in some sort of glorious singletarian uh, sort of merging with our machines, reprogramming our biology future. And the reason I went to see them first was because I just wanted to throw myself in the deep end. 
their agenda, you know, is an absolute sort of car crash of uh, what's happening in biotech and nanotech and infotech. So I started there and then, and then sort of started to unravel it subsequently and just followed my nose, really. So from there I went to Harvard Medical School to meet George Church, who's the, uh, probably the, the architect, the most important architect of the biotech revolution. He's like the father of DNA studies. He is. It? I mean, he, started, he pretty much started off the, the Human Genome Project and now he's doing something called the Personal Genome Project, which is actually linking our our genomes to our lifestyles, which is the one thing that we, we really don't know at the moment. And he's, you know, sequencing 100,000 genomes and asking lots of people deeply personal and embarrassing questions about their lifestyle over the next 10 years it, so that we can start to tease out, you know, why it is that bananas make you ill but they don't make your sister ill, that kind of thing. So nature and nurture and yeah, how that it all kind works, of, really. Yes, kind of. I mean, it's often very, you know, that, that, that nature versus nurture thing, which is very oversimplified, he's going to tease out the sort of the complexities within that, he hopes. And that could change medicine, for instance. It means that a lot of the drugs that we can't use at the moment because they kill one out of 100 people with everybody having their genome sequence we might be able to give the 99 people who could be saved that drug and, and you know the other person doesn't get it so it could make drugs cheaper so yes I did that and then I went off to think, think about uh, artificial intelligence and robotics so it's fascinating that bit I love how you describe all the, the sort of robots and, and really how human and how animal they seem <laughs> yeah it was quite bonkers uh, meeting a robot and then sort of pretty much forgetting it was a robot sometimes later I mean you know, I met the robots that, that acted you know in, in a very human like way and in that way with the exact opposite of Keanu Reeves <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, I think social robotics is a good thing because you know I, most people find their technology quite difficult to get on with and the, you know having a machine that sort of reacts to you and responds to you in a way that you naturally understand and has sort of human like cues means that I think our relationship with technology can become a bit more like friendship which I think is only a good thing being friends with our robots rather than just masters. Yeah, or also friends with our mobile phones and friends with our TVs and stuff, you know, and, and friends with our, our lights. I mean, we I have to become friends with our broadband providers. I think that may be a step too far. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> one day. We can yeah. hope. Yeah. Yes, so that was very interesting. What did I do next? Then I went off to talk about nanotechnology with a guy called Eric Drexler, who is largely attributed with inventing the whole field and talked about atomically precise manufacture, which is the idea that you can uh, yeah. make things as a tiny... You know, you can start to manufacture things with atomic accuracy. Now, that's a very controversial way, uh, controversial view. A lot of uh, chemists go, this is ridiculous, you can't do that. I mean, trying to assemble anything down there is like, you know, trying to have a tea party in, a, in the mosh pit of a death metal gig. There's just too much going on there with chemistry. But nonetheless, I explore our ability to increasingly control matter at lower and lower levels of granularity. And, and there is a nanotech revolution going on already. It's invading all sorts of uh, areas of manufacture, in, including disproportionately number of hair-straightening devices, a dis- disproportionate number of hair-straightening devices that use nano coatings. For so, which I am very grateful. Yes, and, and your hair is looking lovely, I'm going to say. <laughs> Thank very you. straight. Um, one of the things you sort of mentioned is maybe you'd have a, a machine on your desk, like the size of a, a printer that could just produce stuff yes. food or things I mean, yes, really this, this is this is the uh, the the, um, the replicator from star trek made real and really don't know uh, that this is this is something that's now being looked into for a while it was sort of you know uh, sort of idea non grata in 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 the, in the world of nanotech because there was this kind of divide but now the the, the cautious thing well maybe we should have a look at this because if that if we can do that and we can start to manipulate atoms at that level and just take in very simple chemical feedstocks then it is a post scarcity world so it's worth investigating as I say, you know, I, I investigate that, but you don't say whether it's definitely going to happen or not. What is happening for sure, though, as I said, is that nanotechnology is already invading everything else and making things cheaper. What really comes through in your book is that some of the ideas are clearly wacky. I mean, maybe we could live for a thousand years, maybe we could live forever, maybe yeah. we could have something on our desk that makes us 
anything we like. But some of them seem very close. I mean, when you went to, to New Zealand, some of the ideas uh, for sort of green energy. Oh, yeah. What, what happened in, in that kind of area? Oh, because it's amazing, some of that stuff. I mean, really, the, the, the thing that I came away most, I suppose, optimistic about was, was our ability to handle climate change, which is currently obviously the core celeb um, for all the doomsayers at the moment. And, and, and does right, seem so. impossible. Yes. How are we going to fix it? Indeed. And then, and then there's sort of any number of solutions. So biochar has originally got this incredible renaissance, you know, that we should bury charcoal. And actually, you find out that actually putting charcoal into soils is very good because it increases food yields. So that's fantastic. So we can actually increase our yields whilst, you know, handling climate change. Now, the problem is that certain soils and certain charcoals react in different ways and if you put the wrong charcoal in the wrong soil you can actually reduce your yield so i went to see a, a company in new zealand they've created this big sort of microwave essentially which creates charcoal called the black phantom but the good thing is about it is you can actively dial up exactly the right sort of carbon for your soils and get gas out of it simultaneously so you can you've got free, free, free fuels you can even get activated carbon which is an incredibly porous form of carbon that's very very useful uh, most usefully you can put it in underwear to filter your farts which i, <laughs> I didn't know about but very you know useful. this is this means that a farmer can put this machine uh, on his farm, take all his waste biomass, all his corn stalks, whatever that he was going to throw away anyway, probably, and turn it into something that will increase his yields, give him some free fuel, and make him smell nicer. And the the other thing I really liked was basically one of the most impressive examples of technology that you wrote about. Just seems to involve some fencing. Yeah, I love How that. How does that work? <laughs> that was absolutely brilliant because it reminded me that you know even though we do have this massively uh, innovative time now with with technologies like nanotech and biotech and infotech sort of goosing themselves into this hyper-exponential growth, it reminds you that sometimes you just need to think a bit more carefully. So what these guys have done was realising that by changing the way they fence in cattle and getting them to move differently, they could increase the biodiversity on grassland farms across the world, uh, sequester huge amounts of carbon into the soil, uh, make their farms completely organic, reduce their cost of production sometimes fourfold. Uh, and an end a cycle of drought and uh, flood that they have in, in Australia, where I was, uh, which is incredible. And what they're doing is simply, simply mimicking the way that herds move in the wild. So they send them you know, into what will get one big herd, send them into one paddock, they move to the next paddock, they move to the next paddock, but they don't come back to that first paddock for 180 days, which means the grass has grown again. Rather than being stuck in there and just eating the grass constantly, they, the grass gets to regrow. And then this them eating the grass, going away and then coming back and eating it again, causes a basically a basic natural carbon pump that sequesters huge amounts, millions of tonnes of carbon into the soil. And you've seen a lot of these technologies, even something as simple as a fence and something as complicated as, as nanotech or robots. How well accepted are these ideas becoming by politicians? Because it's all very well to have this amazing technology and you go, look, we can solve the drought in Australia with some fencing. Yeah. How can we actually make it happen? Well, I, one of the things I've, I'm very clear about is that I, I think like a lot of people on this trip, reinforces for me I've pretty much lost faith in the ability of governments to, to do this. And I don't think that's because the people who work for government are necessarily bad, but one thing that's very clear is the rate of pace of innovation um, is, has a different time constant to the rate of pace of legislation. I mean, by massively so. And, and one of the things that I talk about at the end of the book is uh, institutional innovation, because when we talk about innovation, we'll often talk about what scientists are doing, but we might talk about what people are doing in fashion or music. There's always innovation going on around us. But institutions, and particularly government, don't innovate at all. I think the last innovation that government did was give women the vote about 100 years ago, and that, that's the last thing they changed. They haven't... I mean, seriously, you know, parliamentary democracy hasn't changed in its basic shape for over half, half, a, <laughs> half a millennia. 
Um, and it moves very, very slowly. And, and we're, we're increasingly becoming a networked world. And they're, they're kind of the old-school hierarchy. And I do think we're going to see a massive clash now between the people and the government because the government just can't keep and doesn't service anymore, and I don't think they've bought it. So certainly all the people I met who were just getting on and doing it. In fact, Vicky Buck, who is one of the entrepreneurs in New Zealand I met, used to be a politician, and she left politics because she said... I'm going to replace one of her words because one of her words was a bit fruity. But she said, if we, if we wait for politicians to solve all these problems, we're basically all... And there was the fruity word. Or yeah. in trouble. In trouble, yes. We are, we are vexed, yes. <laughs> and another, another thing that obviously can affect technology is money, because there's this whole thing, well, if it can make you money, mm-hmm. then companies will invest in it, then we'll get these technologies. Hence now we have amazing mobile phones because you can sell them and yeah. people want them. But we still have cars and it seems very difficult to get proper green technology, the sort of things you're describing into the mainstream, so solar panels and algae and all these kind of things. Yeah, and it often does come down to economics. And sometimes technologies can reinforce a bad technological situation. Kevin Kelly's just written a brilliant book called What Technology Wants. One of the examples he uses is cars, because once you've got this massive infrastructure of cars, it kind of reinforces itself. You've got roads, you've got the, you know, the system of distribution of fuels and whatever, and uh, it actually makes it very difficult. It's a very high barrier uh, barrier for any other new technology to enter. So actually, in a way, you can st- some technologies can stifle innovation elsewhere if they become too embedded. But at the end of the day, you, you do find that what usually moves things along is somebody comes along and goes, you know, I can do this cheaper. One example is what's happening in synthetic fuels now. So we, we, we experimented with biofuels, which is a sort of pretty much a disaster. Um, but with what's happening with synthetic bio, there's a company called Dual Biotech that can take waste CO2 and put it through a photosynthesizing bacteria, and it creates petrol. Now, that means you can get your petrol out of the sky, because you can farm the CO2 out of the sky now using some other technology I talked about in another chapter from a chap called Klaus Lattner at Columbia University. Put it through this bacteria, and it'll create petrol. Uh, it'll take a couple of technology generations to make this as cheap as how we currently produce petrol, but it's a lot safer, it's a lot cheaper, you can get it anywhere. And it fits into our current and supply chain. it fits chain. into our current supply chain, so you don't have to change over to hydrogen cars or electric cars. And the good thing is this is carbon-neutral fuel, because you're taking the carbon out there. Yeah, sure, you're burning it back, but now it's part of a cycle rather than just adding carbon into the atmosphere. I think in the next 10 or 15 years, you're going to see a massive revolution in biofuels, but they will be bacterially produced biofuels. So this idea of sort of using things like ethanol or growing massive crops and turning them yeah. into fuel is, is dead end already? Well, it depends how efficient those crops are. Um, but I think yeah, if, I was, if I were a betting man, um, and I'm not, and I, I, I talk about that in the book, uh, for one thing I don't want to bet on, for instance, is you know, climate change. That's why I kind of think, even if you're a sceptic, it really makes sense to you know, go with the it's happening card. Because if you're wrong... A lot of us could die. So I'm not a betting man. But if I were a betting man, then I would certainly be betting on um, bacterially produced biofuels. And I, I'm not the only person to say that. ExxonMobil have just given Craig Venter $600 million. Ooh. Because they, because he, he wants, you know, he, he said rather modestly, I have the, the, the ambition of replacing the entire petrochemical industry. It makes sense if you're an He said stuff like that yeah, before, he, though. He's, he's not shy of, of, of pronouncing himself to be, uh, you know, almost godlike. Um, but there you go, that's great. We need characters like that. What do you think was the most exciting thing, or what person got you most fired up? You went away going, wow, yeah! I've been asked this question a few times, and it's quite a hard one to answer, because they were all inspirational. I think what inspired me the most was, was not any one person or one technology, but how all those technologies are going to combine. 
So the things like the CO2, you know, being used to go into go into bacteria to make fuel—that's two technologies combined. The, the, the fact that that genome sequencing, because of what we're able to do with computers now and, and mass data processing, allows us to, to sequence genome data much more quickly and come up with you know possible medical solutions. So it's the actual combination, this kind of autocatalysis of all these technologies together. And I suppose the other thing that impressed me was that all the people I was meeting simply had kind of rejected this narrative of the future, which is all going to be rubbish, and said, well, it might be, but it might not be. Is there everything to play for, you know, and we're just going to get on with it. And all of them seemed to be driven by the idea of making the world better. It was kind of a collective wow, actually, and I think that's actually more, more satisfying. You know, I was collectively wowed. If that's, can one collectively be wowed? It sounds like an album by um, uh, Haircut 100, doesn't it? Collectively wowed by Haircut 100, in it number four. And that, that's the thing I do have to pick you up oh, on, is, uh, yeah, because clearly, was it, was it Spandau Ballet or Duran Duran that you were favouring over I the Pet Shop Boys? Duran Duran at one point over the Pet Shop Boys. Yeah. I know you find that particularly upsetting. This is, is clearly wrong, but... Yeah, um... Don't buy the book, I'm clearly a fool. <laughs> um, so uh, one of the other things, slight diversion, but one of the other things you sort of touch on in the book is that all this technology is very well, but we are humans and as a species we have to come to terms with this and mm. what this technology might actually mean for our own evolution and how yes. do we get people to actually accept technology because it you know it can be a bit scary yeah it is very scary and i think that's why you see um what a lot of people see as an anti-science backlash and i think that's quite understandable because when the when the pace of change is so rapid and things like what's happening with biotech um, are coming at you really fast. You want something to hold on to. You know, it, it, it does force us to think very, very much about what it means to be human. The thing is, we're, we've been on this road for a long time. If you ask most people, do you think we should carry on trying to cure disease? They go, yes. And if you ask them in the next breath, do you think we should have the technology to allow people to live for 200 or 300 years? They say no. But that's actually the same question. You know, there are people wandering around now with stem cell-grown you know, replacement body parts. This isn't science fiction. It's happening. So... Uh, the conclusion I came to was that I have this as well. I, you know, I kind of resist it. But what human beings do most in, efficiently, m- m- better than... You know, the only animal that do it is we evolve now, not biologically, but through technology and culture. And trying to uh, reject that, trying to, try to, try to, try to, trying to hold on to something that is essentially human by rejecting the things that humans do best, i.e. evolve through technology and culture, is, is ultimately futile. And a man called Mark Badeau was an ethicist... Um, and philosopher I went to speak to, he, I think he said probably the most wise thing in the book, he said, change will come. You can either try to stop it from happening, you can ignore it, or you can try to influence it in a positive way. He says trying to stop it from happening is futile, and ignoring it is simply irresponsible. So that only leaves you one option, really, which is trying to influence it in a positive way. Which is, again, why I wanted to write the book, because I think people need to be informed, they need to see what's going on, and then, you know, to be given the choice, go, well, you know, it's coming, what are we going to do about it? Are we going to do something good with it or do something bad with it? And what are your plans now for, for the book? Are you going to go on another tour in, in 10 years and see where we've got to? Where, where are we going next? Uh, my personal plans, is it, it, well, right now I'm off to America to do a sort of ridiculous book tour. But I think it's like 18 cities in 12 minutes or something like that. It's oh. quite, quite crazy speaking to billions of you know, Americans. My, my next big project is something called The Age of Smart. Um, I can't say too much about it now, but it is very much that, um, OK, let's have some bottom-up network governance. Uh, and it's quite under the wire. We've only got 30 million people involved with it at the moment, and it'll be 100 million by the end of the year. I won't tell you where. And uh, But next year, I, basically, I, I really want to put uh, more power into the, uh, network governance, I think. That's what's going to be my big, my big thing next. So getting people to organise themselves rather than... 
Organise themselves. Men in suits telling us what to do. Organise themselves, challenge themselves, force each other to think more critically, force each other to force themselves. I mean, it's called the information age for a reason, and one of the things that we're very bad at is handling information. You're not taught it at school. We're not taught scientific method very well. Uh, we're not taught Socratic inquiry logic. And, you know, and, and we have a whole generation of people that don't know how to think critically, and I included myself in that. You know, it's, I've had to fight to learn... You know, when I'm being biased, when I'm being prejudiced, when my newspaper is telling me something, you know, that kind of agrees with me but isn't right. And I think um, it's hugely important when you've got mass access to knowledge and mass publication, we now need mass filtering. We need to be able to train ourselves to do it. And the individuals, the companies and the countries that do that will be the ones that succeed, I think, in the next you know, 50 years. So I'm putting all my efforts into network governance and uh, the promotion of critical thinking. So the internet is for more than just pictures of cats. You think that we can really actually make good social change. Yeah, but let's not, let's not forget the pictures of cats. I mean, I particularly like cats that look like Hitler.com. That is one of the funniest things I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> the future is here. Yeah. <laughs> it's cats that look like Hitler. Yeah, and at least it's only cats that look like Hitler now. You know, I think, you know, the other thing that I talk about in the book is the decline of violence, uh, which is uh, staggering. Uh, you know, it, it sounds counterintuitive, but that is, mm. that's happening as well. So it, we've just got cats that look like Hitler now and, and, and less Hitlers. So, overall, do you feel positive about the future and your future, you know, over the remaining span of your life, however long that might be? Well, kind of uh, no, and yes, and which is an odd way to answer it. Well, I'm, I'm not saying the future will be better, um, because there are, I talk about all the downsides to these technologies. I mean, we've had a very nice chat about all the great things, but, you know, there are going to be nanotech three-mile islands, and there'll be biotech 911s. That's, that's absolutely true. Um, but the future could be better, and I think there's everything to play for. So, you know, it might be, you know, the future is very much like Carly Minogue, sort of exciting but short. Um, but it could be a renaissance, and we've got to put the option back on the table. Because the one thing I do know is if you can't imagine a better future, then you certainly can't make it happen. And so we need to at least put that back on the table, and I hope the book goes somewhere to going, hey, it could be brilliant, why don't we try heading in that direction? That was Mark Stevenson, author of An Optimist's Tour of the Future, talking to me, Dr Kat Arney. The book's out now from all major bookshops and online retailers, and it's an absolutely cracking read, both fascinating and funny. So go and get yourself a copy now and give yourself some reasons to be cheerful about the future. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.